Good morning. Open your Bibles or navigate on your devices to Revelation chapter 21. We're looking at the book of the Revelation. We're in chapter 21 today. We're going to look at verses 9 through 13. Or excuse me, 9 through 23. Just had our first glitch for this mission. The topic, John watches New Jerusalem descend from heaven to its place over the new earth in the renewed heavens. The title of our message, Going Up to the City in the Sky. Let's pray. Lord, today as we look at this beautiful city and the beautiful bride, we can't help but see you because you're the one that makes all things beautiful in its time. You're the one that's working in our hearts and in our lives to make us beautiful. The most beautiful thing that has ever been. It's hard for us to understand that or comprehend that in this current state that we're in and these bodies of flesh that we're in. But I hope to see you in this text, Lord, making us so beautiful. And that we would be inspired and encouraged, Lord, that you want to do the same for others that don't know you. And we would go about the business of sharing them, not as a burden, but as a blessing. And so, Lord, we ask for your wisdom and strength and grace as we go through this text. We ask it in Jesus' name, and those who agree said, amen. It has a distinctive name, the Nightingale of Kuala Lumpur. It's a red burgundy, one-of-a-kind gown that is worth $30 million. Malaysian designer Fazel Abdullah incorporated chiffon and silk, Swarovski crystals, and 751 diamonds weighing over 1,100 carats. A 70-carat teardrop diamond further adorns it. Egyptian designer Henry, uh, Hani rather, El-Bahari created the world's most expensive wedding gown at $15 million. Several hundred diamonds and precious stones cover the dress. Ivory tulle and silk organza are the fabrics from which it is sewn. The diamonds and stones form intricate patterns from head to toe, glittering over the bride. You're probably a little more frugal. Brides.com can help. They have a list of dresses under 100 bucks, and they say they will make you feel like a million bucks. Sure they will. The world has yet to see the most beautiful bride in the most breathtaking setting. We get a glimpse of her in our verses. Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. It reads as if this were the moment in an earthly wedding when the bride appears and those gathered see her for the first time. In case you don't know, the church, you and I who are saved, is the bride. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you glorified will highlight New Jerusalem. And number two, Jesus' glory lights New Jerusalem. Let's take a look at ourselves glorified in verses 9 through 21. Fancy villas, high-rise apartments, lakes, parks, sprawling road networks. These cities in China have it all. Just one element is missing, people. About 50 such ghost cities have been built and they lay desolate across the country waiting for population. New Jerusalem would be no more than a ghost city without its inhabitants. 
Believers in their resurrection bodies are the highlight of the city. Its true beauty is us made beautiful by Jesus. And so as we see the spectacular city described, remember that it's us that makes it beautiful. Verse 9, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. It's not uncommon for a person to retire and then enjoy a second or a third career. The seven angels who poured out the seven last plagues had a very short bowling career. One of them retired to become a tour guide. Thinking about that, I wanted to say, pray about how you might serve the Lord in your retirement. If you're blessed to be a person that has a type of a career or job that leads to a retirement, especially if you retire early, serve the Lord afterwards. Uh, and, and, you know, don't, a lot of times people say, well, you know, I'll serve the Lord when I have time because I'm going to retire early. Well, then do it. Pray about it. We all plan, well, most of us, most of you uh, plan for your financial future. You have uh, plans and ideas of what you want to do. Uh, build the Lord into that in terms of serving. When you think about moving to your, you know, I think right now it's Tennessee where everybody wants to live, right? Uh, when you think about moving to Tennessee, think about where you're going to go to church in Tennessee. Uh, there's a lot of churches. In fact, there's probably Baptist churches on all five corners. Uh, but, uh, you know, a lot of people I know have left Calvary here or other churches as well. They never find a church. I, I know one couple I'm thinking of that's been gone 15 years and still hasn't found a church. I don't think they're going to. Uh, and so uh, pray about it. Lamb is the preferred description of Jesus in the Revelation. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by his sacrifice on the cross. He's the only one worthy of taking the scroll from his father and bringing the current dispensation to its end. Reaching back to chapter 4, Jesus stepped forward as the Lamb of God. God who was man who died so that he could have the right to take that scroll and uh, we move through the revelation, through the great tribulation to see his second coming and the renewal and reconstruction of all things. What Jesus called my church in Matthew 16 was a mystery until he and the New Testament apostles revealed it. There is no church in the Old Testament. The church was born on the day of Pentecost after Jesus' resurrection, when Jesus sent God the Holy Spirit to empower and give boldness to believers to preach the gospel until he comes to resurrect the dead in Christ and rapture living saints. One of many illustrations describing the church is that we are the bride of Jesus. The angel invited John to take a look at the church, the bride, the lamb's wife. Now this is important. John saw the church collectively. He saw the church from the day of Pentecost until this moment, all of the resurrected dead in Christ, all of the raptured believers, all together at once. He saw them in the city, New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem adorns the bride in that sense, the way a gown would adorn a single bride. Do you understand? You get that? It's a Because people say, well, is, is the church the bride or is the city the bride? The church is the bride adorned by this beautiful city. Just as a bride is adorned with her gown and jewelry, so is the church adorned by New Jerusalem. Verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain 
and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Jesus promised he would occupy himself building mansions in heaven for us. When the heavens and earth are remade, New Jerusalem will be moved from its construction site in heaven to the atmosphere above the earth. Having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. There's something beautiful about an aerial view of a great city lit up at night. Maybe you're flying in and getting, you know, towards the airport and the lights are all glistening. All of the earth's cities combined are barely a match compared to New Jerusalem because it shines having the glory of God. Verse 12, also she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. The ministry of angels changes dramatically throughout the dispensations of human history. They are everywhere during the great tribulation performing incredible deeds and carrying out wonderful missions. Afterward, they stand honor guard in New Jerusalem. There's no reason, no need to guard. It's a ceremonial posting. God gifts each of us as believers. It doesn't mean our gifts are ours to exercise when, where, and how we will. I mean, we wouldn't imagine one of the angels who had the, you know, one of the seven trumpets saying, I, I don't want to stand guard. That's lame. I'm a trumpeter. Give me a trumpet and let me go. But sometimes we, we have a tendency to feel that way. We, we say, hey, that's not my gift. Well, regardless of your gifts, you are first and foremost a servant. You're a servant who's been given gifts. A servant does whatever they are asked. A servant sees a need and meets the need. Jesus, the greatest servant of all, he didn't come to be served, but to serve. Uh, examples this for his disciples and for us the night before his crucifixion when you remember the story, they were having that last supper and none of the disciples thought to wash the other disciples' feet. It was a lowly job. No one would stoop that low until Jesus did, and then they were all embarrassed. Uh, and so that's the picture. You do what needs to be done. Jesus, son of God, I'm a, hey, guys, I'm going to die on the cross in a few minutes. Can somebody please take up a basin and wash the feet? Not my ministry. And so think about that and say, Lord, is there a need that I can meet, and how can I do it? Because you know what? I'm going to do it in his strength, not in my own, and I should trust that. The gates have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. In verse 14, we're going to read, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The apostles, along with the prophets, laid the foundation for the church. Notice here, Israel and the church are two distinct entities in God's plan on into eternity. Israel and the church are not one and the same. They never have been. Roman Catholics and most Reformed Christians and others are confused. They teach that the church replaced Israel in God's plan. Uh, in other words, Israel in the Old Testament was the church, God's people, and then God abandoned them when they failed, and now the church is God's people. That's not true, and it's proven here by what is said. Even in the future, there will be a distinction. 
You cannot understand Bible prophecy and you will be led into misinterpretation unless you keep Israel and the church separate in God's plan. The Apostle Paul wrote, I say then, has God cast away his people, speaking of national Israel? Certainly not, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people from whom he foreknew. People will say, well, Israel just, you know, the church is some kind of spiritual Israel. And so in that sense, the church is Israel. Paul is specific. He says, I am an Israelite, but he says, I'm from Abraham and Benjamin. Nothing symbolic about that. He was talking about his ethnic descent. And he said, God will not turn his back on his people. He will not abandon Israel. And I'm glad for that. Because if God could abandon Israel, what's to keep him from abandoning the church? Nothing. But we know God is faithful even when people are faithless and that he will perform the work that he has promised. Commentators and critics make a hullabaloo about the 12 tribes. Been wanting to use the word hullabaloo for some time. Wasn't that a dance show in the 60s or 70s? Was there a show called Hullabaloo? Who remembers? Anybody? Yeah, I think it was, I think it was a dance show. Don't ask me why I watched it, but of course, there were only three networks then and wrestling. Uh, so, and roller derby. Now, roller derby, there was, yeah, I was an LA Thunderbird fan. The girls, they were all on the opposing team. They always were the same girls, but the different jerseys. So I, it, I couldn't understand. So back to the study, the original 12 tribes were Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, uh, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. I suggest for you families to be Naphtali and Gad as great names for your boys. Gad, I mean, what's better than that? You can say to him, E-Gad, or something like that. Naphtali, there's a lot of different, uh, uh, anyway. I said that these were the original 12 because Joseph had two sons while he was serving as prime minister of Egypt. His father, the patriarch Jacob, rewarded Joseph with a double portion of land by adopting Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, this adoption technically split the tribe of Joseph into two, meaning there were now 13 tribes. The various lists of 12 tribes in the Bible don't always match. And so people scratch their head and think, well, it says that there are these 12 tribes and then there are different lists. For example, I'm pretty sure in the Revelation, uh, earlier when they give a list of the 12 tribes, they leave Dan out. So why? Well, we're never told why these lists differ. It is need to know and we don't need to know. You ever had somebody tell you that? This is on a need to know basis and you don't need to know. Well, we don't like that, but you know what? Why spend, uh, we could, and I don't think it's wrong necessarily, but commentators go into great detail about why they think Dan was omitted or left in and different lists and all that. Anymore in my old age, I think if we're not, if something isn't explained, if we can never know it, let's just accept it as it is and move. It can't be important, right? Not, not to us, not in this dispensation. And so, you know, if, if, I'm to a point where if I don't need to know something, I don't want to know it. I look at people and say, do you need to tell me this? No, then don't. Let's, let's you know, keep things just coffee. Uh, anyway, <laughs> now the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. More commentator confusion surrounds the 12 apostles. 
Jesus chose Judas Iscariot to be one of the 12. After his betrayal and suicide, the 11 remaining disciple apostles rather drew lots to pick Matthias as his replacement. Some commentators think that they were premature because it seems evident that God meant for Paul to be the 12th apostle. Well, after Matthias is chosen, the group of apostles is called the 12. God the Holy Spirit considered Matthias the bona fide 12th apostle, or he would not have inspired the writer of Acts, Dr. Luke, to use the title. And so the 12 is a technical term talking about the original 12 apostles. And when Matthias was added to that group because he f met certain requirements, he was considered, they were considered the 12. Peter and Andrew, James and John, Philip, after that it gets tough for me. Well, Matthew I get, but not Bartholomew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Jude who is also known as Thaddeus. Thaddeus doesn't get his due. And then Simon the Zealot and Matthias, those are the 12. Is it possible that the great apostle Paul will not have his name commemorated somewhere in the city? Yeah, let it be a lesson to us. Paul said this of himself, I am the least of the apostles, do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Our rush to honor him for his work reveals a wrong tendency to desire recognition and position. It is a sign we are looking at outward things whereas the Lord looks at the heart. I mean, I'm like, yeah, I look at Paul and I see, man, it is, you know, I've heard him called the greatest living Christian and many other accolades, uh, you know, to Paul. Um, at the same time, Paul says, hey guys, I, I, this, I believe this, this isn't just, you know, false humility. I am the least of the apostles. I think it would horrify Paul if he saw that there was a monument with his name on it or a chair that he bought at a church or something like that. You know what I mean? Uh, I mean, seriously, let's take him seriously. Now, it should, you should, and I should be the same. We should think, I am the least of the saints. It's a miracle that God chose me. Uh, if you only knew, that kind of thing. Rather than, they didn't even mention my name. I worked so hard behind the scenes and didn't get a mention. One of the great stories that I love to tell Back 100 years ago, uh, we had a, a mission to Japan and all the Calvary, a lot of Calvary pastors went, some of the big guys and some of the little guys. I was one of the little guys. I think there were 12 of us all together and we ministered in Japan. It was a great time. And then uh, at the senior pastors conference after that trip, a few months later, Greg Laurie got up and he, he was on that trip. And so he got to talk about what a great trip it is. And he started naming all the guys that were on the, on the trip. Don McClure, Danny Bond, et cetera, Raul Reese, Xavier Reese. And then he got to uh, the end and it was, there was two guys left, me and one other guy. And he goes, oh, was, uh, oh yeah, whoever. And then, and then he goes, and one other guy. <laughs> That's, what a great moment. <laughs> it really is, you know? So I don't know if I thought it was a great moment at the time, but in retrospect, great moment because you're the least of the saints. And so just be excited to be mistreated uh, in that sense, okay? And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, 
of an angel. The angel's third career is a surveyor. Although an angel, he uses the measure of humans. That's what it means according to the measure of man by an angel, it should read. It solves a great debate for us. We won't be using the metric system in heaven. Cubits and furlongs, or as it says in some Bibles, stadia are in your future, and so you better read up on it so you know how to measure. The New Jerusalem's length, height, and width are equal. It is either a cube or a pyramid. A cube is more reminiscent of the tabernacle and the temple, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, let's do some math together to get an idea about what this city might be like. These are just things, you know, we're just spitballing here. New Jerusalem measures about 1,400 miles in every direction. That's what these measurements uh, work out to be in uh, our measurement. Uh, uh, one human being takes up a minimum space of two feet by two feet by six feet or 24 cubic feet per person. Mathematicians calculate that six billion people could fit in one cubic mile. They'd be crowded, but that's a lot of people. If the city had 20 billion residents, each person would have a cube of space that is 75 acres in every direction. Here are a few more calculations. New Jerusalem is a multi-story city. It goes pretty high. In the return of the king, the city of Gondor is an excellent example of a multi-story city. It's built into the side of a mountain and, and it goes story after story with a winding road to it. Beautiful city. If each story in the New Jerusalem were 10 feet high, again, so we're just you know, doing this to give some perspective. If each story in the New Jerusalem were 10 feet high, it would have 792,000 floors. Suppose the mansions on each floor were 250,000 square feet each. There could be more than a quarter million mansions per floor. At a vantage point 5,000 miles away, New Jerusalem would appear more than 130 times larger than the moon. The ground coverage would equal the combined areas of all but nine of the United States. Some scholars suggest the city is gonna sit on the earth, not hover in the heavens. It's pretty obviously too big to be on the earth. I mean, it would literally cover the United States for the most part. It's big and it's not gonna be a ghost city. A lot of people have gotten saved. Many more will get saved before the city makes its dramatic descent. The first high-rise building in the Bible was the Tower of Babel. Nimrod and company started construction on a brick and slime structure to reach the heavens. They weren't building a stairway to heaven. The finished structure would be a place to observe and worship things in the heavens. Archaeologists call these ancient towers ziggurats. They good guess that the tallest of them was just under 200 feet. Tallest building in the world now is the Khalifa Tower in Dubai. It is just over half a mile tall, 2,722 feet. It has about 163 stories. It wouldn't be a lawn ornament in New Jerusalem. You get the idea of how big this place is. The construction, verse 18, of its wall was of jasper and the city was pure gold like clear glass. Striking, vibrant colors will be produced as light passes through and reflects off gems and precious metals. Pure gold is said to be like clear glass. In verse 21, we're going to read that the, city of the, uh, the street of the city rather was pure gold 
like transparent glass. Verse 19, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh hyacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. Now, I don't see any reason to get bogged down explaining all of these stones individually, and in fact, uh, some of their names are debated by scholars as to what they really are. Uh, all I can say at this point is that it's going to be pretty, right? It's going to be the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in terms of cities. Verse 21, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Oysters that big scare me. Anybody used to scuba dive or you're a scuba diver? You know, you get down under there and because you're wearing these weird masks, everything looks bigger. Man, it's terrifying when these big fish come. You know, and you know that they're not harmful. You know, it's, it's just a carp, but it's like, it's this big and you think it's going to swallow me. It remembered I killed its brother the other day or whatever, you know. And so, uh, it, 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 big oyster. I suppose it'll be friendly if you come across it, however. This description is probably where we get the idea that Peter is going to meet people at the pearly gates. It won't be Peter. He had to be met at the pearly gates if that happens, and Jesus is going to be our host. Notice it says the street, singular, no cul-de-sacs, only one winding ribbon of road climbing up 792,000 floors. Once again, think of Gondor. The building materials are precious gems and minerals. What do we do with precious gems and minerals? Or better yet, what do wives want their husbands to do with them? They are the jewelry that we give to the one we love. New Jerusalem is precious gems in a pure gold setting. The city is an immense jewel that will adorn the bride. Extravagance is a trait of romantic love. You want to be able to give your loved one something amazing, it's not because you are materialistic, but because you are romantic. When given to the one you love, things of great value show you care more about him or her than things in all the world. If you could, you'd give your loved one the world because the one you love has more value to you than anything and everything else in the world. Charles Spurgeon reminded us, let me revel in this one thought before God made the heavens and the earth, he set his love upon me. You, glorified, will be the highlight of the new Jerusalem. Jesus' glory is going to light that place. We've encountered several twelves in the text. There are a lot more twelves, groupings of twelve in the Bible, 187 of them to be exact. Uh, we don't get off too much on biblical numerology, but numbers are very important in the Bible, and they do symbolize things, some of them at least. The number 12 conveys perfect government. The 12 patriarchs of the 12 tribes were the leaders governing Israel. And so God created a nation out of one man, Abraham, and he determined that the best government for that nation was to be 12 tribes with 12 patriarchs. The 12 apostles had the authority to lay the church's foundation, to govern it, and to establish its future governing leaders. And so the Lord said, I'm going to build my church. He said, the best way of doing that is to have 12 apostles. And so the idea is, I mean, there are other things that 12 symbolizes, but it always symbolizes good, perfect 
government. Perfect government? I'm thinking Australia, though. Sorry, you Aussies. What is going on in Australia? They're, they've gone nuts over COVID. Everybody's on lockdown, shut down. They're arresting people. The army's involved. Uh, it, it's definitely not perfect government. Uh, and there never will be. As great as our nation is, and it is the greatest nation on earth, maybe ever, uh, before, besides Israel in the Old Testament, uh, but uh, we won't have perfect government until Jesus is here. And this is a promise. When you read about the twelves of Revelation, it's like, hey, this is coming. And guess what? You and I are going to be part of it. Remember we had a study where we talked about how we will help judge in those days. Don't you watch TV and say, hey, this is what they should do. Forget that guy. You're wrong. Well, without yelling, we'll be able to do that in the millennium. We'll say, oh, excuse me. You're wrong. You're done and stuff. So it'll be great. Uh, verse 22. I saw no temple in it for the Lord all, uh, God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The sense I get of John's statement, I saw no temple in it, is that he was looking for it. The temple at Jerusalem had been a constant in his life. For many years, he had visited it at least twice annually, as was required of every male Jew. The lack of a temple in Jerusalem, in New Jerusalem, rather, would have been a stunning realization for John. Stunning in a good way, because he was immediately inspired to understand that the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And so he said, well, where's the temple? That's right. Jesus and the Father are the temple. God met with Adam and Eve face to face. Adam and Eve's sin broke their FaceTime with God. The penalty for sin for them and for their offspring was and remains death. The sacrificial death of an animal as a substitute could temporarily restore fellowship with God. The law of Moses eventually codified a system of substitutionary sacrifice. God put his glorious presence in the temple and later, the, or the tabernacle rather, and later the temple. He met with his people through a mediator after the shedding of blood. So there would be the shedding of blood and then the priest would meet with God on behalf of the worshiper. And that was a pretty great system considering that the wages of sin is death and that God is perfect and holy. Then the New Testament book of Hebrews comes along and proves that Jesus was better than the temple system of sacrifice in every way. In fact, he is now our mediator. He goes to the Father for us, but because we are in him, we have immediate access to the Father just as he does. And that's why the Bible can say that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. We don't have to, uh, you know, come, uh, you know, uh, well, we come boldly. I couldn't think of the word. We don't have to come shakily or whatever. Uh, we come boldly. And I always think of uh, those old pictures of John John and JFK in the Oval Office. Remember those? Uh, some of you were just born yesterday, and so you don't remember John F. Kennedy, but uh, he'd be doing this incredible, you know, Cuban Missile Crisis stuff, and his son would be hiding under the desk and stuff because his son had immediate access to him. He didn't have to go through a mediator, a, a babysitter who said, you know, I'll go talk to your dad for you and tell you what you're going to do. And so we have this access, this immediate access. And that always prompts me to say this. Please do not get involved with rites 
rules and rituals that distance you from the intimacy made possible by Jesus shedding his blood. There's always going to be a movement in the church towards ritualism, towards religion, towards rules, which says, yeah, you're a Christian, but when you do this, you'll be so much more spiritual. When you start keeping the Sabbath like I do, and whatever that means, you know, we've talked about this many times. I don't even know what people are talking about when they say keep the Sabbath. Uh, they're just talking about whatever they think they want to give up that day. Uh, and so, but they think well, that makes you more spiritual. One thing that's going around right now, and I want to be careful saying this because after all it is scripture, but a lot of people are finding new power in reciting the Lord's Prayer. And so there's groups, I, you know, that are taking the Lord's Prayer and, make, and they're incorporating it as a reading in their church service or things like that. You and I know, right, that the Lord's Prayer was his outline for prayer. His instruction to the disciples on how to pray was never meant to be a prayer. And so when we say things like, thy kingdom come, it's, it's a reminder that we're not living for this kingdom we're not to be materialistic, but spiritual. And so when I pray for something, it's not that I say thy kingdom come necessarily, it's that I pray with the perspective that there's going to be a future kingdom. And so if I'm praying for a sick person, I can pray that they would be healed, but more so that they would anticipate life in the coming kingdom when they will be raised from the dead and serve the Lord. And so that's the idea. And so, but now everybody wants to pray the Lord's Prayer and feel more spiritual. I tell you, I prayed the Lord's Prayer about three million times when I was a young Catholic and I never felt more spiritual. It just didn't do it. That along with the Hail Mary and the Apostles' Creed and the act of contrition over and over and over again, it just doesn't really do anything for you. So take that to heart. There's plenty of these things that come along and people will tell you, hey, do this, walk this prayer labyrinth or you know, read this or do that and you'll be more spiritual. I wanna go right into the Oval Office, right? I wanna go right to the throne. I'm not interested in a stopover in a prayer labyrinth or anything like that. Verse 23, the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it the lamb is its light. Who doesn't enjoy a good sunrise or sunset? Well, you better get that out of your system too. Last week, we learned that there was gonna be no ocean. So surfers are, you know, really crying right now. And now the rest of us, John, he leads up to it slowly. He says, oh, there's not gonna be any ocean. And I says, oh, by the way, there's not gonna be any sunrise or sunset either. But who cares? Because the Lord will be the light of it. The city will con is constructed so that the light of Jesus, his glory reflects throughout it. It'll be like no light we've ever experienced before. No one will miss darkness. I was watching an old Pawn Stars episode. They discussed how they were fooled when cubic zirconia first came on the market in the late 70s. They finally figured out that th there aren't any really perfect diamonds and they were looking at all these you know, cubic zirconia that were coming across as perfect diamonds. And so they figured that out. Not, after the, not until they lost some money, though. John knew his gems. He knew his gems. He knew as well that the Lord would never build with substandard faux materials. He mentioned pure gold when, in fact, on earth, gold cannot be 100% pure. 
Neither ought we to build with wood, hay, and stubble, but with gold, silver, and precious stones. How do you do that? Just do everything as unto the Lord in his empowering, and you're building with the best materials. It isn't that we need to identify, well, what are those materials? The idea is that if I do everything as unto the Lord and I do it in his power, not my own, I'm building what he wants me to build. And, and that is like building with gold, silver, and precious stones. You and I earn rewards from the Lord while we're doing that building. John earlier likened our rewards to adornments that we add to our white robes of righteousness. He wrote in Revelation 19:8, and to her, the bride, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So we have a, a robe of righteousness, but our righteous acts also add to that. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a silly illustration, but think of a NASCAR driver. They get out of their car and they're covered with decals, right? They advertise every, everything from soup to nuts. Uh, my, one of my favorite scenes in Rocky was when he's coming down to fight Apollo Creed and they, they say, well, he's got some meat company sign on the back of his uh, jersey you know, or his robe because he was an advertisement. Well, we're gonna be able to adorn our robes with good works that we have done. And as I've told you a million times, like any bride, you wanna be as beautiful as possible. And so for a Christian, a lot of Christians say, well, I don't care about my rewards. Uh, we're just gonna give them back to Jesus or throw our crowns or whatever and stuff, I don't care. That would be like a bride saying, I don't care how I look. I'm gonna sleep in and show up late, whatever I happen to have. In fact, I'm gonna get married in my jammies. You know, I just, just wanna get right to what it's gonna be like, you know, in a year or so. And, and so, whatever I'd be wearing in a year, here we go. And said, so, no, nobody says that. Or if you do, you need counseling. There's something wrong with you. And so, Christians shouldn't do that either. They should think, well, I have an opportunity here. And, and what's neat about those opportunities the Lord shows you them, you, he, you walk in the, with him in them, and then he empowers you to do them, and you feel like you didn't do it at all, and then he says, yeah, now I'm gonna reward you for it. It's, it's grace, like crazy, and it's wonderful. Gals, I'm sorry, but you will never wear the nightingale of Kuala Lumpur. It's not gonna happen. And guys, you will never build anything like the Khalifa Tower. Compared to New Jerusalem, Building for Jesus far exceeds anything mankind could ever accomplish. The Tower of Babel, mud and slime and bricks. I like that, that he added slime. So Nimrod says, we're gonna do it. We're gonna defy God, we're gonna build. What are we gonna build with? Mud and slime and bricks. And we're gonna get maybe 90 feet. And all the time the Lord is thinking, there's gonna be 792,000 stories in the New Jerusalem. What would you rather hang out by, the Tower of Babel or New Jerusalem? What is wrong with you? And then centuries go by, and now we have another Tower of Babel that goes almost two mile, a mile high, or two mile, half a mile high, right? 22, 2,700 feet, wow. And I'm sure if we were in Dubai, we would be amazed at the Khalifa Tower, these skyscrapers, you know, and all that. And then you think, is it what, like 160 stories? Well, that's, let's see, what's 792,000 uh, minus uh, 160? I mean, it's crazy. And it isn't the city that looks marvelous. It's the church within it that the city adorns. One final thought, this is from A.W. Tozer. 
An infinite God can give all of himself to each of his children. He does not distribute himself that each may have a part, but to each one he gives all of himself as fully as if there were no others. And that's why collectively we are the bride of Christ. But individually, you and I are the bride of Christ as well. His love knows no bounds.